and welcome to The Corona Zone, the podcast for people stuck in quarantine and wondering what the hell is going on. I'm Kirsten, I'm here with Gabby, and thank you for joining us for episode 10. I can't believe when we started this that we were going to make it to episode 10 and that we'd still be in some kind of lockdown. Um, it seems so long ago. Yeah, I know, thinking about the fact that initially uh, it was maybe only going to be a three-week thing. Yeah. I, I know things have kind of lightened up, but this might kind of go on for a lot of the rest of the year, at least partly being in lockdown, you know? It might be a while after all of that until we go back to any kind of normality, if if we even do go back to anything like normality. And that's without even touching on the possibility of a second wave, which I'm sure none of us want, but it's unfortunately a possibility at this point. Definitely. Um, at this point, we're nearing 7 million global cases and almost 400,000 deaths. In the UK, cases are just short of 300,000. And the confirmed hospital deaths this weekend have sadly passed 40,000. Yeah, and the, the interesting thing as well is that's obviously a horrible you know mark to hit, uh, especially considering that right at the start we had uh, Patrick Valance saying that if we had 20,000 deaths, that would be a, a good scenario. Obviously, that's we're at double that now. What's really concerning is uh, something that we've spoken about quite a few times on the podcast is that that number is still the number coming from the UK government for official COVID diagnosed hospital deaths. But looking at the most recent ONS figures for uh, all deaths linked to COVID in just England and Wales as well, this isn't even the UK as a whole. By the 22nd of May, there had already been 43,000, nearly 44,000 deaths. So we're likely much higher than the number that we're getting from the UK government once you take into account having caught up, you know, with a couple of weeks worth. So it's quite worrying, um, you know, to, to think about what the number might actually be. Yeah, the Scottish uh, death toll is sitting about 2,415. And that's from almost 16,000 cases. Again, the Scottish government figure is slightly lower than the National Records of Scotland figure, so kind of Scotland's answer to the ONS. It's 3,911 deaths registered in Scotland where COVID was mentioned on the death certificate. So this includes people who didn't have a test to confirm a diagnosis, but it was heavily suspected. So again, that's quite significantly higher actually than the government figure. I mean, we have talked before about the fact that there are lots of ways of measuring this. If you look at excess mortalities, that's a lot higher again. So in any case, it's just quite sad news. Things are improving, though. Um, I, I mean, if you if you are reading a lot of the news, you might get quite a different picture of what's going on, depending on you know where you're reading, because unfortunately, it has become a political issue as well, not just a health and scientific one. But by looking at the average number of new cases and deaths, um, at least in Scotland, it's it's starting to look a bit more reassuring. Using like a rolling average. Uh, in Scotland, we're getting fewer than 50 confirmed new cases a day. Obviously, that will still be higher because of all the asymptomatic cases and people don't get tests and things like that. But 50 new confirmed cases a day is pretty good considering where we were in the past. So that's more reassuring. In England, it's a little less clear where we are, especially with the weekend effect where 
um, deaths registered come in a little bit later. It's There's not as consistent a number coming in. It's still fluctuating quite a bit. But usually the number of people dying each day is still in the hundreds. And there are obviously, you know, several thousand new cases coming in every day. So that's led to quite a bit of controversy about some of the changes in the restrictions in place, hasn't it? Yeah. It's important to note as well that with COVID, everything's a bit of a slow burn. Mm. Scotland having very few new infections and deaths per day is good and what you would expect given that a couple of weeks ago we were still in full lockdown. The rolling average number of deaths in England has started to kind of plateau but if you look back to when those infections would have been acquired it would actually probably be slightly before the lockdown eased even more as it did recently. For context, the date that we're recording this is the 7th of June. It would have been about a month ago that Boris did his speech of go back to work if you can and stay alert and all that confusing messaging. But I think every kind of week since then, we've seen a gradual easing of lockdown in different ways. Last weekend in England, they announced you can meet up to six people outside your house as long as you're maintaining social distancing. And they've started like horse racing and things like that again even though you're not allowed to physically attend it and we have seen all these pictures of lots of people on beaches and things like that so it does feel like the longer we are out of full lockdown the more it feels like people are going back to some sort of normality. Yeah I I think people were already having a bit of lockdown fatigue set in um, because obviously it was a lot longer than the initial uh, three weeks I think some people might have thought it was going to be. So that coupled with the good weather we've been having and then any indication that it's okay to go and sit outside and enjoy the weather, I think you know it's inevitable that some people will go a little step further. And yeah, like with the beaches you were saying, you know, they've been really busy and I'm sure most people will be trying to stay away from each other. But chances are if you've gone to the beach and it's busy, you'll just try and stay as far away as you can but you're probably still going to sit there Mm. rather than the advice which you know is probably to leave so yeah yeah, the adherence is going to become a real problem yeah and I really don't think all of the news with Cummings and the government retrospectively shifting their guidance about it all will have helped we did talk about that quite a bit last time but it does really feel like since then people have been a lot more lax about things. Whether or not it's directly related to that isn't really something you can quantify, I suppose. But it'll be a whole combination of factors that have led to that. Certainly in Scotland as well, it's still in the guidance that you're not meant to travel further than five miles from your home for your daily exercise or to meet people. But there were huge numbers of people visiting the devil's pulpit just at the weekend oh, really? day um, and that if you don't know it it's like a nice little kind of gorge walk type thing but it's very narrow paths and it's quite a small little area so mm-hmm. the number of cars that were parked there in the news there is no way that you could be distancing if you're going down there it's pretty unlikely that people were able to keep a safe distance I mean we've been in the past and you do have to 
squeeze by people to get in you know it, it's essentially just a big pit and what you know not even big it's deep but it's not a big open area it just reminded me when you were saying about uh the Cummings issue I we should update you know just in case maybe anyone's listening back in the future the uh outcome of that whole situation was that Dominic Cummings is still in his position as a senior advisor to Boris Johnson and the discussion around that has carried on but the government had basically stood their ground he still has his position and yeah the following days has kind of seen growing dissatisfaction I think with their approach and it reminded me um, when you said about you can't really quantify it I still agree because I think there's a difference between how somebody responds to a poll versus what they would actually do or what their motivations are to some extent um, especially because it's a hot topic but mm-hmm. YouGov actually put, uh, conducted a poll where th- they asked people if they were uh, still following lockdown guidelines and they found that of the 21% who said that compared to the previous week they had followed the rules less strictly 32% of those people mentioned Dominic Cummings as one of the reasons that they weren't following the rules It's impossible to know, but maybe some of those people that mentioned him would have done it anyway, um, or maybe they did. It's really difficult to know, but things like that definitely do impact on the trust people have in government at a time when we ideally would be trusting that they were making good evidence-based decisions and when they're trying to bring in measures to, you know, control the virus spreading around in our community now. And it's especially important to have that trust as we're easing lockdown. So I alluded to the fact that the UK government have started to ease restrictions in kind of dribs and drabs over the last few weeks. And so there's a lot of kind of ongoing discussion and concern about whether or not these are appropriate policies to introduce now. And some things that maybe are a little bit inconsistent The UK government brought in a kind of rating system of our alert level that a lot of people compared to the Nando's spice levels. (laughs) But it seems like we're around about a level four in terms of the number of new infections and deaths and things that we're seeing. But the guidance that we're getting is moving into kind of level two or three sort of territory. So it's really hard to see exactly why even have a rating system if it doesn't seem to be something that they're following. Yeah, the the rating scale, I think, considering how recently it was that that was brought in as what was supposed to be a clear signal of when it was safe to do things, to so quickly not follow that, I, I think kind of shot themselves in the foot a little bit in terms of trying to have clear signaling for people. And then I think it was revealed that Chris Whitty had vetoed the decision to move down to a three like based on the evidence they were getting Uh and then the way that some of these new policies have been brought in has also been a little bit questionable um i've seen a couple of tweets to do with regulations about uh wearing masks in different healthcare settings people saying we weren't informed about this ahead of time we haven't been consulted so this is going to be difficult to suddenly implement um or Mm. with the horse racing that was announced in a tweet by Matt Hancock one evening, I think. It, it wasn't mentioned at a press conference. It was just kind of thrown out there. Definitely more recently, there does seem to be a bit of discontent between what the scientific advisors from SAGE have been saying to the government and what the policies 
tend to look like. Of course, we don't know exactly all of the advice that Sage have been giving, but a few more advisors coming forward and saying that they don't exactly agree with all of the policy decisions being made. And I think, interestingly, I've noticed at least, um, I've not measured this in any way, but anecdotally, at least, I've noticed that in the press briefings, they've stopped throwing around the phrase, we're following the science as much as they used to, because mm. I think they can't really say that that's true anymore, which is a worrying thing because we really do need to be considering the scientific viewpoints here. And one of the really key things that the behavioural science group have talked about is the importance of clear messaging during this mm-hmm. time. And that just really has gone out the window. Yeah, it, it's it's making the job much harder, I think. Um, I mean, going back to conversations we had in the past about the stay alert messaging, you know, we were, we were talking about the shift from something that was clear and actionable and simple, you know, stay at home unless you have to go to work because you're, you're an essential worker or you have to buy food or medicine, stay at home. And people knew what that meant. They could do that. They knew the impact of that. And the government themselves were surprised by the level of adherence they got to that. You know, I think they were expecting people to get like a lockdown fatigue or not follow the restrictions. But now we've taken the shift from that really clear messaging to this general, you know, we're going to start letting some things ease up, but there's other things you can't do. And it was always going to be complicated. I I don't think it was ever going to be an easy thing to explain, especially when it comes down to the specifics about when you can see people or where you can go, which was something that I think the Scottish government tried to be careful with. with, um, They had a few quite clear infographics, but certainly since the start of easing, I think people have gotten a bit confused or need a bit more uh, consistency, at least, with what's going on. So yeah, if you have reports of the government's own scientific board disagreeing with the actions they're taking, on top of the fact that they're not even following their own advice with the alert scale, Mm. that's just a recipe for people not following the guidance because honestly they might not even know what it is anymore definitely (coughs) another new policy that has been widely discussed is the 14-day quarantine that's now to be imposed on people coming into the uk from other countries there has been a little bit of backlash um people saying why are we doing this now it's like locking the door after the horse has bolted and then some criticism on the other side saying this is really going to affect aviation and travel i do think i see both of those arguments it it seems like you know travel quarantines would have made a lot more sense before there was community transmission and i think countries that have been successful in managing the outbreak did do that to more of an extent than we did I know months ago, talking about my sister's fiance in Hong Kong, going back there and having to quarantine for 14 days. So it does seem odd to bring it in now when we clearly still seem to have quite a bit of community transmission ongoing. I suppose the logic there could be that it might not be possible to include new arrivals in the test and trace system if they're not. UK residents but then I don't really see why that is because they are asking people to give over their kind of mobile phone numbers and 
the address that they're planning to stay at and things like that when they arrive. So I don't see why they couldn't be included in a test and trace system. Yeah, I I, I totally agree. Like, Definitely trying to prevent the importing of new cases from abroad makes sense when you don't have so much of an active outbreak. You know, if you've gotten things under control and there's not really community spread, clearly at that point, you don't want to be bringing in any extra cases. But it, yeah, it, it definitely feels like bringing it in now is almost, I, I almost want to respond to that, just like, well, what's the point? You know, like, mm-hmm. we, we should have brought it in before. The idea being that at that point, you can prevent many cases happening in the first place. Whereas now, yeah, I don't know. Having people coming in being included in test and trace seems much more intuitive because if that's the way that we're controlling the spread in the community now, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess it depends on if they have the contact details of people they've been near. Um, or maybe if we had an app, then that would work, you know, because they wouldn't need to have the contact details if an app was picking up if they were near somebody. Yeah, that's true. But of course, the app's not up and running yet either. And it was supposed to be, I believe, that when Test and Trace came in, that the app would at the same time. But I think they're just still ironing things out with that. There has been a bit of discussion of these air corridors between countries, which I have been paying attention to because back in November, (laughs) me and my friends booked a holiday to Portugal, which is meant to happen in July. And I have absolutely no clue what is happening there yet. Certainly, I think some people kind of taken the view that even if it is going ahead that we shouldn't go because, you know, being on a plane is technically breaking lockdown and it's unnecessary travel and things. But I think I'm going to let the aviation gods decide. <laughs> I mean, I suppose if it turns out that, you know, there are measures in place to try and keep that as safe as possible, if it's allowed that you can do that I, I guess it just comes down to a personal decision at that point we'll cross that air bridge even when we come to it <laughs> <laughs> going back to test and trace so it is now running but there are quite a few criticisms and maybe issues of transparency currently we don't have daily figures on the number of new infections that have been contacted by test and trace and then by extension of that, the number of people that have then been contacted. I think Jeremy Hunt was talking about this and he believed that the reluctance to publish might be because the figures aren't looking very good. Whereas Dido Harding, who is, uh, who's been appointed to run the test and trace, has implied that the reason that they're not publishing that yet is because they're trying to make sure that they're collecting the data properly. But that to me also doesn't sound like a great excuse because it still sounds like you don't really know what you're doing. I can understand you know, where she said she wanted to, they wanted to verify the information or validate the information mm-hmm. that they had because there definitely is a danger in putting figures out before you're sure of what they are. Definitely. Like with the amount of coverage that COVID gets every day now, um, there really is potential for the figures you give out to totally get swept away into a mass of coverage and people you know, draw conclusions from that and it can potentially affect behaviour or influence how well people use the test and trace system. So definitely you want to make sure. But at the same time, I think it's clearly apparent that transparency is key here and that from the start, these types of information need to be available. Even as just like 
good press essentially you know if you can come out from the start and be like it's been running for a week this many people have been contacted this many people are now safely isolating because of cases and are now not spreading that in the community um i I think that could really help if you're doing that yeah and i think it actually would probably benefit their messaging if they were more transparent so if they said look we're actually not publishing figures yet because it's a very new system. There's maybe teething issues and that's fine because it is brand new, but being honest with the public about that probably could benefit them a bit because otherwise there's just a lot of criticisms floating about that don't really get properly addressed. As is quite common with the way that Boris Johnson has been speaking, he keeps talking about things being world beating and how we've got the best of this and the best of that. It's not surprising that some people got the impression that when Test and Trace was going to be up and running, it would be exactly that, like fully up and running. When you then have signs that maybe it isn't fully up and running, it just creates doubt rather than people allowing for that. The thing that was embarrassing there was that the kind of original headline or claim was world beating by June 1st. And now more recently Mm. they've said, oh no, up and running by June 1st, but world beating by September. And that's like, what? (laughs) Um, By September, that's quite a long time. And also, why does it need to be world beating? It just needs to work. Yeah, it just needs to be adequate. Again, going back to issues of transparency, there've been a lot of reports of poor training for people who've been hired as contact tracers and some logistical issues in that they're people just sitting about waiting for something to do and obviously they're being paid to work and again I think those reports wouldn't seem so damning or critical if the government had always been up front. I suppose the problem is that the government's response to these reports has been that oh, well, it's actually a good thing that they've not got anything to do because we've got so few new infections. But we, we don't. Um, there was one day that they were being asked about this where there was 8,000 new infections. So I would have thought that there would be work for people to be doing. Mm-hmm. The other side of this that's really important is testing. All the way through the progress of this pandemic in the UK, testing's been a real focus of discussions. At first, it was the 100,000 test target and then the 200,000 test capacity target. But now that we're looking at test and tracing, something that's becoming more important is the turnaround time. There's this golden 48-hour period where it's the time between being exposed to the virus and your ability to infect others. Um, If you're exposed to a virus, it needs to replicate and things in your own cells before you can shed it and be infectious to others. For that to work in terms of test and trace, you need to get your test results within 24 hours. And so that is something that at least government committees have now been discussing. And so that's now a target, which is really good, but hopefully we'll actually start to see that being realised and happening going forward for the test and trace to actually work. As as time has gone on and more people have been affected by COVID-19, it's become clear that some people seem to be more affected than others. Um, originally, this was anecdotal, I think, with like medical uh, professionals coming forward and saying that they were seeing 
more of an effect in some than others. Um, and this has eventually led to reports and inquiries into it. Um, the most notable of which, and which was quite anticipated, I think, was one coming from the government here in the UK um, by Public Health England. So this report titled COVID-19 Review of Disparities and Risks in Outcomes did also look at a number of different factors. So they were trying to look at the change in risk with COVID and the outcomes of that by your age and your sex, where you live, your levels of deprivation, your ethnicity, your occupation, and whether you're a care home resident or not. And I think people were hoping that this would be more of a thorough investigation that it was I don't know if it was right or not to expect that at this point you know to to some extent you have to do the groundwork before you can start looking at the fine details but unfortunately I think a lot of people felt that this was lacking because it didn't really reveal anything that we hadn't already seen so there were conclusions that people from different minority backgrounds did seem to be more affected overall by COVID with a higher chance of people dying from it. But there were big caveats in that saying that, for example, they hadn't controlled for occupation in that comparison. So it's it's frustrating because it's clearly a really important issue, especially you know with the timing of this report. And there were also issues with the release of the report and the timing, which we can go into in just a moment. Yeah, clearly this is a very important issue and hopefully this won't be the last report we see because I think this is something that needs to be looked at really carefully. So one of the problems with the report is that it kind of told us what we already knew. Mm -hmm. I think it was already quite apparent that people from black and minority ethnic backgrounds were dying disproportionately, but the report didn't really give us much of a clue as to why that is or what could be done to prevent that and I think while we're right in the middle of the pandemic understanding why and how we can prevent that is the most important thing because I think probably a huge part of this will be to do with social inequalities and obviously that's not something you can change overnight but I think a better understanding of how that's contributing to increased mortality is is at least as important as understanding that the disparity is there. There have been a few criticisms. At one point, the government suggested they were going to delay publishing the report because of the ongoing Black Lives Matter protests in the US and now globally. And then the next day, they published a report after a lot of backlash suggesting that not publishing it would be much worse at this time. But since then, there have also been other strange things about this report. Public Health England, right back at the start, said it was going to be led by Professor Kevin Fenton, who's a black doctor. And since then, the BBC have come to understand that it was actually led by Professor John Newton, who is a white man who is head of the UK's testing programme. And Professor Fenton was just a contributor to the review. And the thing about this that I find quite concerning is that it highlights the fact that Public Health England understood why having a black professor leading this would be quite important when we're looking at race and disparities there. They understood this enough to say that he was leading Mm -hmm. it, but in fact he wasn't. And that just seems, you know, worse than if they just ignorantly picked John Newton to lead it and actually hadn't thought about that. It just doesn't sit very well with me. 
it does seem a bit disingenuous, at least. I, I don't know what exactly the process was behind announcing that someone black would be an, in charge and then getting revealed after the fact. It's all these little issues, like going back to all the stuff about distrust in the government at the minute that is really becoming an issue. It's things like this. It's saying one thing and doing another or things getting revealed after the fact that weren't as they said they were. Or Yeah, definitely. I, I think another thing that has been a little bit controversial about the report has been that people from some of the organisations and charities that have contributed to the report who say that some of these findings haven't then ended up in the final published version. Again, there could be reasons for that. We don't exactly know the process that was taken. Obviously, you will discuss and conduct research with lots of different think tanks and groups, but it does seem that the same theme seems to have been dropped, and it's the idea that discrimination and poor life chances are what these groups were suggesting might have led to this increased risk, and it's that that's been omitted. It's always worth considering what is going on behind the scenes and you know just like the process of peer review sometimes sometimes it can take quite a long time for these kinds of results to come out because you have to you know verify and get other expert opinion and it, it's possible that those sections maybe weren't in a complete enough state to be published yet um, unfortunately that does mean that it can come across like it's just been left out which is technically true but I think there can be different interpretations of the motivation behind that you know it, it might be that those sections appear later on after some more research has been conducted or it's been reviewed further to a stage where they're more comfortable to release that data you would hope that they're trying to do this as best as they can I, you know I, I think it would be unreasonable to think that you know everybody working on this report is trying to cover things up generally people are trying to do a good job mm. and I, I would I would hope that that's the, the case but clearly it's very frustrating when I think an issue that is very important to a lot of people and should be important to everybody is just lacking in answers and for what what could potentially be related to systemic issues at this stage you know the problem is that because there have been so many questions about transparency with the government and with this particular report, it's quite easy for people to be sceptical and to feel like that information's been omitted because it doesn't really make you know the government look very good if the previous 10 years of austerity and lots of systemic racism and there is systemic racism in this country that really doesn't get addressed. Whether or not those things have led to um, an increased number of deaths, you could see why they wouldn't want that in the report. So although, of course, there may be lots of other things going on that led to it not being published, I can see why people are sceptical. Yeah, in the context of everything else that's been going on right now, it, it's not a good look. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think as well, the protests that we're seeing at the moment this weekend, government officials have been suggesting not to attend them because it's not in line with the guidance. Um, obviously, mass gatherings aren't recommended just now, even though I definitely think the cause is hugely important and it's especially important in the context of a pandemic that is discriminating 
I just want to read a quote from an article in the New Statesman by Gary Young because I think this this really ties together the significance of this in the context of COVID. He said, COVID-19 has demonstrated how racism can kill in far less dramatic ways and in far greater numbers without offering a morality play that might be shared on social media. When the police and politicians order the protesters to go back to their communities, there seems little recognition that that is where they are dying in such disproportionate numbers. That in the slogan, I can't breathe, among George Floyd's last words as the police officer knelt on his neck, there is the connective tissue between the most brazen forms of state violence and the more banal tribulations of the ailing pandemic patient. So, Gabby, what have you been up to since our last podcast? So, uh, this week I had a big personal achievement. Um, I've spoken about having started doing running in the last few weeks and I was following the Couch to 5K program. And I'm very happy to say that on Tuesday this week, I finished it. Oh, well done. It's it's not... I, <laughs> disclaimer, I didn't run 5K. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think... From discussions I've seen around the Couch to 5K program, more of the emphasis seems to be on the timing uh, rather than trying to push yourself to run the full distance, especially because I think people starting at different levels of fitness and uh, that kind of thing, it's more the amount of time spent running that is important. So Mm. at the end of the program, uh, by the time you finish, you can run 30 minutes without stopping, uh, which I honestly don't know if I have ever done that, like, Definitely not as an adult. Um, I, I got, you know, seven weeks or so into it when I was about 2021. 20, and I remember it feeling much easier than it did this time. I'm hoping <laughs> that's not age. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, I ran 30 minutes without stopping and I did it again yesterday and it still really sucks and feels really hard the whole time. Um, but I did it so um, I'm trying to make a point of being proud of myself for that because not a lot happens day to day right now and um, I tried really hard to get to that point and I'm glad that I finished it. No that is really good going because I've also been running quite a bit through lockdown and I can't do that Um, so maybe I should go and do couch to 5k as well. (laughs) I think the next step in trying to get a bit healthier is um, I should start bringing in some strength days and, you know, do a bit of like basic weight training at home because it'll help with running, but also it's just, you know, good for your health or muscle strength, bone density, all that jazz. So mm. that's the next goal. Yeah. I think one of our friends is doing the 30 day splits challenge. Um, oh, oh yeah. I remember her saying that. <laughs> yeah. I might try and do that. I remember at the start of lockdown being like, yeah, maybe I'll learn to do a handstand and obviously haven't done that. Um, <laughs> but we'll see. <laughs> I mean, I've seen a couple of videos in the past of people trying to teach themselves handstands and it always seems to take way longer than I think it will. Um, I think you yeah. need quite a lot of arm strength and like core strength to hold yourself up. It looks a lot easier than it is. Yeah, and it's weird because I really remember being a kid and everyone could just like go into a handstand no problem <laughs> not me but a lot of people could <laughs> yeah your friend would do one and someone else would just try it and do it it wasn't like yeah. train up to a handstand thing <laughs> yeah maybe we're overthinking it <laughs> <laughs> i mean i certainly was not one of the people that could just 
do cartwheels in the school field so um i can relate um what about you kirsten what else have you been up to not anything as active as that <laughs> i started listening to the dissect podcast which i heard about on the high low which was another podcast but it is a podcast that dissects uh music albums uh it takes it season by season is a different album and each episode is a different song in that album but i've been listening to the season about lemonade um beyonce's album and i mean i already liked the album but i'm learning so much um and it's Mm. also just got a lot about the references to black history and early black lives matter movements there was the unlawful murder of trayvon martin and how some of that's referenced through like the visual album and stuff and i mean as i say i already liked beyonce but it's just increased my appreciation for her like tenfold (laughs) i think people still sometimes just see her as a bit of a pop artist but I, i think she's just got a lot more depth to her music now i've always been really interested in the the following that Beyonce has, you know, people that like her and her music really like her. You know, she's she's Queen Bee. I I maybe would have a listen to that podcast. I think that would be really cool to kind of hear behind it. I've I've never been very good at paying attention to lyrics and songs. I've quite realised because um I have a partner that is really good with that, and you know there'll be a song on and he'll tell me about like the backstory to it, and I'm like oh. I've just realized I've never even listened to what's being said in a song before because <laughs> I'm more of a like melody appreciator rather than lyrics, I think. Um, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> I'm missing a whole part of the song. <laughs> it is a bit like higher English. Um, <laughs> you know, where they're like, oh, they mean this. And you're like, I hadn't thought of that. Mm. Um, the thing about lyrics, though, I remember a few years ago, there was like a Kygo remix of the Tracy Chapman song, Fast Car. And I was like, why are we all getting down in the club to a song about poverty? <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. like, that didn't that didn't go down well with me, but it was a yeah. groovy tune. <laughs> but yeah, weird choice of song to remix. Yeah, I wonder how often that has happened and people just don't notice because it's like, ooh, I love the beat in this song. Yeah. <laughs> so this week I'm pleased to say that uh, quizzes seem to have taken a back seat <laughs> I think I'm definitely all quizzed out uh, somebody mentioned one I don't, I don't know whether it was maybe one to do with uh, Ewan's family but it fell through and we didn't do it and I was pretty relieved <laughs> I don't think I can put together any more rounds and sit and keep track of scores and like I just want to do something different <laughs> Oh, I still love quizzes. Although, actually, <laughs> me and my friends this week progressed to a murder mystery. Oh, cool. How did that go? Basically, we were all given characters whose names were like David Bow Wow and <laughs> Annie Detox and May Donna. Oh, Elton Gone. Elton Gone. Yeah. Oh, that was good. Yeah. <laughs> um, And we all just kind of had scripts and stuff and then I had to listen to this bit of tape um which was this guy with a weird fake Geordie accent um (laughs) (laughs) and then at the end we all had to just guess who the murderer was and the tape tells you who it is (laughs) oh cool 
I have once been physically to a murder mystery night. I think a friend of mine in high school had a party where they did one and we had to dress up for it. I, I don't know why I hadn't thought about doing that over Zoom. That's perfect. Yeah, the best murder mystery I ever did was one where we all had side plots and like we had to go and do ah, other tasks. But cool. that would be harder on Zoom because you all had to have like individual discussions and try and get mm. different info out of people. Mm -hmm. Um this one we did dress up but mostly people just wore sunglasses <laughs> <laughs> is that for poker face or just that's an easy costume for portrait of you on zoom <laughs> well yeah because it's like music stars um oh, true, for some reason yeah. we have a black cowboy hat in our house so i just wore that put sunglasses on red lipstick done <laughs> <laughs> So did you, did anybody work out who the killer was? I think, no, I think the the murderer, like everyone had different guesses and, and the person who actually did it, no one guessed. Oh, okay. Tricky then. Yeah. In hindsight, do you think you could have solved it? Like, did it seem like it fit together? N not really, but I didn't uh. mind. It was fun. <laughs> um, although... My character was like an alcoholic feminist and I don't know what to read about my friends giving me that. It, it sounds a bit on the nose. <laughs> <laughs> so now that in Scotland we've had like a couple of things ease up with lockdown restrictions, have you done anything differently or have you, have you been out anywhere? No, because no one lives within five miles of me. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, and... I'd have to get a lift from my parents to go and meet someone like in Stonehaven and go for a walk. So I've not done that yet. Um, mm -hmm. What about you? Uh, last week we went and sat in the park on the Saturday. It was when we had the really hot weekend. So that was really nice. Uh, unexpected benefit living as someone that lives in a flat is it was just really nice to lay on the grass and not have the feeling that there were like people on the balcony above and below me and people talking everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> that was, yeah, that was lovely. We like took a pack up and a blanket and went and sat, you know, a little bit in the shade so we didn't get too hot and took a book. And I really didn't appreciate how nice of a thing that could be just to get out of the house and spend time somewhere else, especially because, you know, up until last week, if you went to a park, you felt that you kind of had to be in constant motion because then it's exercise. So that was really lovely. And then the following day, we went to uh, my partner's parents who live maybe a mile away. So we, we drove there because I think it would be about an hour's walk there and back. And just to save a bit of time, we drove. Um, and we went straight round to the back of the house and went and sat in the garden and sat, you know, two metres away and... Um, had an ice lolly and yeah that was that was also really nice because that's the first time I've seen anybody I know um other mm. than you know passing Lauren once on a run <laughs> um, <laughs> uh and it, yeah that was that was really nice I really appreciated that I kind of didn't want to go back to the flat but um we'll we'll do it again soon this whole experience has definitely made me really appreciate smaller things like that I think not to say that there are for, for such a you know a horrible thing it's like a catastrophe that all this has happened um and I don't mean to say like oh well at least I got this positive mm. um but 
it has really made me appreciate the small things like that um you know being able to go and see family and sit somewhere nice and just have time in a nice environment and not just be in your house all the time yeah I can't imagine what I'm going to react like when I see people again I've not seen my boyfriend since like March oh wow yeah that's so long how are you guys doing with that uh yeah it's fine it's hard he sent some flowers the other week though so that was nice oh Um, that's cute but yeah it is weird yeah I, I bet there's quite a lot of people in relationships that have had to find ways of coping maybe some of them are starting to be able to see each other again but yeah again if it's up here you still have to live close enough um and a lot of people I think have been staying with parents if they're a bit younger you know so um it's difficult Mm -hmm. to know how long it'll be for some people maybe yeah I have no idea I think that's a thing that's hard as well as not knowing when you'll be allowed to but I mean we've all made sacrifices (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah I, I think I don't think there's anybody that hasn't been affected in some significant way by what's going on I mean you know even if you're somebody that's still been able to go to work Mm-hmm. you've still not been able to you know go out to restaurants you've not been able to go and do other fun things outside of the house um just going for food shopping is a very different experience it, it, yeah. I think you would be hard-pressed to find anybody that would say no my life is still pretty normal yeah. um so going back I think will be quite an adjustment for most people as well yeah I have been doing one of these long-term studies where you get sent a survey every week Um, And it's following up people's mental health through the outbreak. And I wonder how long they'll continue, you know, once we start lifting lockdown. Um, Because I do think there probably will be quite a lot of long-term consequences on this, even as we adjust back out of it. Yeah, I I think we'll see more of like a long-term tapering because there's not just a, a switch day, you know, where we go from being in lockdown to everything going back to normal. So I think they'll probably be some like lingering effects but hopefully things will get easier for people as time goes on and things get eased off a little that brings us to the end of episode 10 just a couple of shout outs before we go there's been another really great article in the atlantic by ed young um this time looking at the possible long-term effects of covid so people with technically mild illness because they're not going into hospital having long-term breathlessness fever um, and things like this coming in waves so this is something we're starting to hear more about and might discuss in a future episode but we'll retweet the link to that article for you and another shout out to the Hilo's most recent podcast episode or maybe the second most recent depending on when you're listening uh, released on the 2nd of June uh, which was this week devoted to uh, providing a list of resources where you can educate yourself about the issues with racism obviously a really poignant issue right now Uh, so if you're interested in finding out you know where you can learn a little more about some of the issues that we're seeing discussed take a listen to that and they'll point you in the right direction And that is, of course, on top of the brilliant efforts I've been seeing on social media. Um, I'm sure I'm not the only one that's seen a lot of people that they've been following on Twitter and Instagram taking time to post resources like that. So, yeah, we really recommend taking the time to kind of do a bit more reading around that topic. 
yep, I definitely second Gabby on all of that. We hope everyone is continuing to stay safe and sane as the lockdown continues to ease. As ever, for reliable health information, check out the NHS website and government guidelines. We're on Twitter at CoronaZonePod, on Instagram at the CoronaZone, and our Gmail is thecoronazone at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is from audionautics.com. Thank you so much for listening again to this week's episode. We hope you've enjoyed it and you'll hear from us again in two weeks. Thank you. Bye. Bye.